So Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there, it's also printed in your bulletin. Uh, Nathan, the senior pastor here, has introduced a series for the spring uh, in this book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to, most likely to a group of churches in and around Ephesus. Uh, Most scholars think that this letter was intended to circulate amongst a number of churches in that area which had been planted and which were uh, no doubt new, being that this was written in the first century. Um, And like most churches, the church at Ephesus uh, was an up and down kind of situation. There's a lot of really great encouraging things happening there and there were some things that the Apostle Paul would write to correct. But the beginning part of this letter, as Nathan has talked about the last few weeks, it is beautiful. And uh, for the last three weeks, Nathan has, has shown us that uh, the Apostle Paul is giving these Ephesian believers a picture of salvation, a glimpse into redemption from God's vantage point. It is the view from on high, the mountaintop view of how salvation works, how the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is involved in our salvation and in the redemption of the whole world. And the Apostle Paul turns here in verse 15 and doesn't really change thoughts, but what he does is he begins to to really drill down and apply that beautiful salvation. And he turns and he starts to pray for these Christians in Ephesus. Before we read that, let me kind of draw you in to what the Apostle Paul is doing here uh, through drawing us back just a month or so ago to that most wonderful, joyous time of the year that we call Christmas. Uh, Christmas is certainly, hopefully, joyous and wonderful, but uh, as you know, definitely you do know as a parent, um, if that's you, that it is also quite stressful. Uh, There is just all the the pomp and circumstance of, of maybe kids' parties at school and having to take off work for that. There's the kids being at home which is wonderful, and um, there's maybe family coming in, there's meals, but then there's the whole gift thing, and gift buying, gift giving is, it's crazy. (laughs) You know, when I was growing up, my aunts and uncles, they, they got all of their nieces and nephews gifts, and so now I wonder, as an uncle myself, along with Sarah, as an aunt, If we don't give gifts to all of our nieces and nephews, does that mean we are terrible people? Or maybe when you give, uh, when someone gives you a $25 gift and you give a $50 gift in return, have you now created some sort of guilt gift, guilt in that person where you've given them more and now you're wondering if they feel bad for giving you less? And maybe that's just me and my own neuroses, but it's just, it's a lot. As we look at this passage, I want us to start thinking about God. What kind of gift giver is he? Does he keep track? Does he look for what we give him in return? Is he um, wondering if there's a hook to our service to him? Are we wondering, is there a hook to his gifts to us? What does God do with his gift giving? And what kind of gifts does he give? Well, this passage isn't exhaustive by any means in terms of the gifts that God gives to his people, but it is instructive because it shows us, as the Apostle Paul prays for these Christians, it shows us at least a couple of God's good gifts that he gives to his good people. So let's look at it this morning. 
And then we'll pray and consider it. Uh, Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please pray with me. Father, we do pray that as we turn our attention uh, to your word now and as we consider what it is that you would have for us as we look at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, We pray that by your Spirit, you would take these words that were intended for that church some 2,000 years ago, that you would apply them now to our hearts. Lord, we don't want to be the same. We know us, and we want to change. And we know and trust that you are strong and able to do that in us, to change us, to make us more and more into the men and women and children that you have created us to be. You've made us to be like Christ, our Savior. So would you use this time now to make that more so? We pray it all in his name. Amen. There's two primary gifts that Paul prays for this Ephesian church uh, to experience as they find themselves united to Christ by faith. The first is Paul prays that they would know, receive the gift of knowledge that we have through Jesus. And secondly, Paul prays, and it's, this one's a little bit um, hidden, but Paul prays that we would know and experience the gift that is the church, that is given to us and secured in Christ. Let me give you a note. The first point here is noticeably longer than my second point. So lest you start hyperventilating, waiting for me to introduce the second point, it's a lot shorter. So point one here, the gift of knowledge. In verse 17 and 18 right there, uh, Paul prays that the church... Uh, would have the spirit of wisdom in the revelation of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I probably do know enough about you to know that you could stand to have a bit more wisdom in life. It, it's hard. I mean, just the decisions that come at us, whether that's familial or things related to work or friends or gift giving at Christmas, whatever it is, we could all use more wisdom. What about revelation? I don't know about you, but I know you enough to know. You would probably like to know and understand God more. The revelation of of who he is and what he's doing in this world and, and how it is that all this stuff works. How we navigate the difficulties and the suffering of this life. And how we navigate the joys and the successes. And that's what Paul is praying for them, that they would have this wisdom and revelation of God. And there is two things within that that he prays for them to know specifically. 
The first is that he prays for them to know the hope that God has called you into. The hope that God has called you into. Uh, Last weekend and maybe for the remainder in the balance of this past week, uh, you had hoped that the refs would have made that right call against the Rams last Sunday. And then you hoped that Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, would have somehow overturned it, or maybe even somehow said anything at all, but he didn't. And so there's been silence, and this whole state has just grieved, groaned in frustration over a missed call. If you're not a football fan, then take solace with us that are. It was brutal. We hoped that it would have been different. I hope that every time I open my door to the house that there's not a cloud of mosquitoes waiting just to rush in and eat my family. I hope that's not the case, but it is every day. See, here's the thing about hope and the way we think about hope. We often think about hope in the category of wishing. We wish that the play would have been Overturn. We wish that Goodell would have done something. I wish that mosquitoes would die a perilous death. But that is actually not how the Bible thinks about hope. And when it uses the word hope, especially in the New Testament, that is not what it is doing. It is not talking about a wish. Biblically, hope is the act of waiting expectantly for a future certainty. In the Bible, This concept and notion of hope is the act of waiting expectantly for a future certainty. And so in verse 18, Paul is saying, having had the hearts, uh, the eyes of your heart enlightened, so again, he's speaking of their having had come to faith and having had the Spirit open their eyes uh, to the knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done. I am now praying, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope or the certain promise to which he has called you. Okay, now before we talk about what the object of that hope is specifically, which he does, let me say that if you are here this morning and you find yourself believing in Christ, if you are in Christ, and that's Paul's favorite phrase um, for Christians, If you are in Christ this morning, you may know a lot, or you may know a little about God, about Christ, about the salvation that he has given you, but I need to tell you this, there is so much more for you to hope for. There is so much still ahead of you that is a future certainty. The Bible is chock full of promises which have been laid open and made clear to us that are ours in Christ, many of which we don't yet fully experience. But I would even probably dare to suggest and think that God even has things for us in Christ that he hasn't even made known, which we will get to see and experience fully, finally, in glory one day. There is so much out ahead of us, the future certainty that we have in Christ. But what is Paul saying specifically here is the hope that we really 
should latch onto and which he is praying that those Ephesian Christians would latch onto. Look back at verse 18. He wants them to get, to understand, to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. A couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe you're here, maybe you weren't, but Nathan talked about the nature of an inheritance. An inheritance, really by definition as we normally think about it, is something that is gained or accessed or accessed when someone else is lost. Now, something that is gained or accessed when someone else is lost. So, we may gain a, a certain sum of money or maybe a piece of property or some junk from someone's house. Uh, but the only reason that we have it is because someone has passed away. Someone has been lost. In these verses, then, we might start thinking, okay, right, this is Jesus uh, this is Christian, so certainly it won't be the junk. But when, when someone dies, I'm going to start getting stuff. And now that Jesus apparently has died, I'm going to start getting stuff. I'm finally going to get a green egg or, or new golf clubs or mimosa handcrafted jewelry or a new phone or whatever it is that you're into. You might just start immediately going to the material realm. And look, I'm not saying that makes you a bad person. That makes you human. Um, And I actually think that biblically there is some truth to that. There is a material inheritance that awaits the people of God. I don't don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I have my own desires. Um, But I think Paul is actually doing something different here. And there's two ways that I think we kind of miss or misunderstand this inheritance. The first is that the, the death that guarantees this inheritance, and this may be obvious to you, but I want to state the obvious. The death that guarantees the inheritance for Christians, it's not something we're still waiting for. We are not still waiting on either our death or the death of everyone or or anyone that is still living. The death that unlocks and puts the inheritance in motion has already occurred. It is the, the, the death of Christ. So here, think about this. At the cross... Not only was your sin paid for, which it definitely was, but at the cross, the key to your inheritance turned in that door, and it is coming. It is a certain reality for you now. It's a coming reality in its fullness, but the inheritance is yours now. Your name was already written on the line in the Lamb's book of life. So all that Jesus intends for his people is a certain, it's a future certainty that you can hope for right now. But here, let's think about this second thing. And Nathan mentioned this a few weeks ago also, is that when we start thinking about an inheritance, again, it's only natural, we start thinking about what does that mean for me and what am I getting? Whether it's stuff or it's to be with Jesus or finally to escape suffering, whatever it may be, but Nathan mentioned, and I think the Apostle Paul is really keen on this idea that that when he talks about the inheritance, he's talking about Christ's inheritance of us. Look at it right there. God's inheritance, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Nathan mentioned that picture of Jesus not as the bride walking down the aisle that 
that we as the church are all waiting to come down and see his beauty, that is not the image of Scripture. The image of Scripture is that Jesus is the bridegroom, and he's waiting on us as his bride to come down and to meet him, and he's the one who is basking in our radiant glory. Now that is backwards, y'all. That is backwards to how we think about us, to how we normally think about the church, to how we think about Jesus. But I'm going to suggest that it is when you start grasping that that is how Jesus thinks about you, wedding day affections about you, that it's going to start changing the way you think about him. And the way subsequently you start thinking about you. When you know that you have been loved and seen and anticipated like that. Your desires for the material things. Your mindset and your preoccupation for your own inheritance. Whether material or otherwise. Begins to fade at least somewhat. You have to know that the Lord of the universe is crazy about you. You are his inheritance. What hope, what a gift. I remember um, growing up, I think it was actually, as I kind of moved into adulthood, um, my brothers and I, I've got two brothers, one older, one younger. Um, We would do this song and dance with, with my mom and my dad, and it would get near their birthday, and we would ask them, because I'm a terrible son and I don't know my mom well enough to know what she would want for her birthday. I would ask her, what do you want for your birthday, mom? Like, what are you into these days? And she would say, Brent, I don't want anything. I just want you. I don't need anything. I just am happy to have you. And there's nothing better than that. That's how Jesus feels about you. You are his inheritance. You are glorious. It's a gift that we have to know that and to believe that. You're his treasure. The second aspect to this hope of knowledge is in verse 19, Paul also prays that we would have the knowledge to comprehend God's power toward us who believe. Again, before we talk about that, let's just acknowledge the obvious that when we start talking about power... It is pretty hard for us to imagine power ever being used for good. It is uh, readily apparent in our world that power does what? Power corrupts. And absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely. We have a saying for it. We have a life and expectations that are built on what power does. Power is bad. Power oppresses. Power suppresses. Power seeks its own gain and advantage. In recent weeks, we've seen power lead to political standoffs and charges of perjury. In the financial realm, just last year, Wells Fargo got caught. They had opened up millions of accounts, credit card accounts, savings accounts, checking accounts, and they had become charging, begun charging late fees to customers who didn't even know they had these accounts. Why? Because they wanted to be number one. They wanted to have more customers. They wanted the power that came with that. In Hollywood, 
Over the last few years, Hollywood, people's position, their prominence, their power has led them to exploit people around them in really terrible ways, unspeakable ways even. Power, it corrupts. We don't know what to do with it. It's so tempting. And so it is that a right and healthy use of power, it's so surprising that when we see it or when it's caught on video, it it goes viral. It's when you see a famous person take the, the low road and engage in some act of humility or service, and it's just like, oh my gosh, who is this? It's Drew Brees building this amazing park for children of all kinds and all needs in New Orleans. It's amazing. We don't, we don't expect that from the people in power. So what is God's power like toward us who believe? What's, it, what's He do with His power? Verse 20, God's power, as He says here, it is nothing less than the power that brought Jesus from death to life in which then took Jesus and seated him at the right hand of God the Father. And that gets a little bit vague and confusing to us sometimes, but just know that, that the power that brings from death to life is the strongest power there ever is and has been and will be in the world. There is nothing else that can do that. It is what people have been after forever, the, the power to live forever, immortality, the tree of life. People want what God has. And that's amazing, and that's neat. It's immeasurably great, as Paul says. But the key to understanding what this power is toward us is actually in that word right there, toward. God's power toward us. What does that mean? Is that just some force that acts upon us? No. The word there that Paul, and I I don't love like being the, the Greek guy who points out words, but this is really important. When Paul uses that word toward, It is the same word that means into. God's power into us who believe. Translators don't miss it. They're just trying to help it flow more smoothly. But do you catch what that means? That the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you by His Spirit. That power that did the impossible thing is now at work in you to do impossible things. That means that if you're in Christ, let me give you a few examples of the things that we have deemed impossible which are no longer impossible in Christ. That means that the ingrained patterns of habitual sins that you are in or that you struggle with, they can be broken. They can be broken. I am not saying that you will necessarily never struggle again, but I am saying that if the Spirit of God is in you, the same Spirit that brought Jesus from death to life and seated Him at the right hand of the Father, if that Spirit is in you, habitual sin can be broken. And that means you can't just say, I will, I'll always be addicted to porn. Or I will always be worried sick to the point of ulcers about money. You can't say that you'll always be enslaved to wealth or that you'll be paralyzed by your appearance or that you'll be controlled by others' thoughts of you. Look, y'all, if you're in Christ, 
that impossible power which is now in you means that you can't say, well, that's just the way that I am. You are more than your Enneagram number. You're a child of God and dwelt by his spirit of power. Another application of this impossible power in you is that you can love people who are hard to love. And that may be a brother or a sister for you children and you adults. That may be a parent. That may be a coworker, a boss. That may be a Democrat or a Republican. That may be someone who has wronged you in times past. It may be an enemy. Who is it that you've decided is impossible for you to love? It's just, you can't imagine it. As I was studying this week for our time this morning, a friend passed along an article about a woman named Dia Khan. Dia Khan, who uh, is herself a filmmaker, um, a social justice activist on a number of fronts. Uh, These last few years, in the wake of all the the heightened racial tensions and even the clashes, uh, most notably things like the riots at Charlottesville, Virginia, and and things like that, she decided um, to film this kind of, what was a a different kind of film for her. And she went and, and she filmed herself just sitting down and having conversations with some of the most notable Uh, people in these movements, some of what we might say uh, the most wicked of these people, um, the most notorious of them. And she tells the story of um, a neo-Nazi named Ken Parker, uh, who himself had a swastika tattooed on his chest uh, and all manner of things that might come with that. Uh, She talks about and even has an interview with him and caught this on film But I read the article of someone who was kind of interviewing her experience of interviewing him. And in that, uh, she says this, that Ken called me up a few months after the film aired, and he said, I've left. He had left his neo-Nazi movement. She goes on to say, he left because he used the word friend to describe me. Now, this was one of the most extreme people I had ever met, but his experience with me opened him up to speaking to other people who are different from him. So he actually became friends with the pastor of a mostly black church who lived in his apartment complex. The pastor invited him and his fiance to his church, and Ken basically stood in front of everyone there and said... I used to be in the Klan, and now I'm in a neo-Nazi organization, and these are the views that I hold. And dot, 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 he went on to talk about that. And she says, and after he was done, people came up to him and hugged him and said, look, we detest what you stand for, but it takes a lot of courage for someone like you to come in here and share what you have shared. She closes by saying, that was the last straw for him, where he realized that the people he hated so deeply are showing him nothing but kindness and compassion and an open heart, and are showing it to him even though he doesn't deserve it, 
his whole ideology fell apart. Are you surprised that Ken found that kind of love in a church? You shouldn't be. Because the Spirit of God that brought Jesus from the dead inhabits his people and he is at work here. And I know that it's tough for us to see sometimes. But we shouldn't be surprised by it. What would be different about you if you knew and believed that? And now the second point, which as I mentioned is much shorter. Paul talks about the gift of the church, which is all indirect in this passage, but look back at verse 20. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus' head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here's Jesus having accomplished salvation and now sitting at the Father's right hand, the position of power and of rule and of reign. And God does one final thing with this Jesus, the one who is head over all things. He gives Jesus to the church, which is his body. It's his fullness. Y'all, Jesus was given as a gift to the church so that we now can be a part of giving the gift of the church to others. And I get it, the church has a bad rap. In a lot of ways, that's deserved because it's, it's got you in it and it's got me in it. It's got people like Woody. <laughs> it's got people like us whose lives are still inconsistent. And we battle struggles, we battle against the flesh, we battle our own demons, we battle our desires, our impulses, We battle, we struggle. It's a mess, frankly, but according to Jesus, it's a beautiful mess. And it's beautiful because he has said it's beautiful. And it's his bride, and he gets to say what he wants about his bride. And he loves her. And he's committed to her. And so he brings pastors and teachers, yes, and we'll talk about that in the second part of this service. But he also brings you. He brings encouragers and welcomers and musicians and chair stackers and donut eaters and Sunday school teachers and social coordinators. He brings you with your time and your treasures and your talents and your troubles. He brings you to be a part of this. And that means we need you. Because as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So if you come in here this morning, you think of yourself as weak, and you don't have anything to offer, don't listen to me. Listen to God himself say, you are indispensable to the church. And when, it, when we work together as a body, like that church did with Ken Parker, we move out into this world with kindness and compassion and an open heart, and we extend grace and love to many people who, just like us, are undeserving, 
who don't even know that they need it until they see that they need it. But know that we have to move out in Christ's power. It's upside down. It is impossible to think about. But it is yours in him. It's the gift of the church. Let's pray to the God who loves her and who is sending her out into the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the church as a gift. And you have given us the knowledge of who you are and, and the hope that which, to which we've been called and the power that's now in us. Oh Lord, these are good gifts that you've given to your people. Would we now steward them well by your Spirit? And Lord, if there are any in here who haven't tasted of this gift, we pray that you would move in their hearts to desire it. Not just the benefits of these gifts, but the gift giver himself, even Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and you're for us. We worship you again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.